0: Hello, my name is Jordan Marr, and this podcast episode is a result of a partnership between the University of British Columbia Sustainable Agricultural Landscapes Lab and Organic BC. Together, they hosted a workshop series on soil management for producers in BC. Both workshops in the series, one on organic nutrient management and the other on the use of tarps and cover crops as overwinter soil cover, were held online in March of 2022. The workshops featured results from on-farm research trials conducted by the Sustainable Agricultural Landscapes Lab and also included farmer-to-farmer discussions. Funding for this podcast has been provided in part by the governments of Canada and British Columbia under the Canadian Agricultural Partnership, a federal-provincial territorial initiative. Thanks for joining us you are listening to one of two podcasts that have been recorded to delve deeper into each of these research projects through conversations with the researchers and farmers involved in the field trials. In this episode, we'll be learning about some research that examine the role that silage sharps can play in managing agricultural soils in the winter months in British Columbia. Rilani Kessler has been pursuing her master's degree with UBC's Sustainable Agricultural Landscapes Lab, And for this project, she compared the use of tarps as a soil cover to soils planted in cover crops over the winter, as well as soils left bare. Her primary focus was to determine each strategy's impact on soil readiness in the spring, as well as impact on crop yield. This episode has two parts. First, you'll hear a narrative piece about Raylani's research that she produced herself. And then you'll hear a follow-up interview I conducted with her. That's all for now. I hope you enjoy this episode.
1: As farmers in the Pacific Northwest, I bet you recognize this sound, walking the pathways between rows in the off-season, trying not to get a boot stuck in the mud. This is a chronicle of soil on those wet winter days. So welcome. My name is Raylani Kessler, and you're listening to Stories of Soil Cover. This particular story begins in the fall of 2019 with the start of a research project. This study set out to investigate how different types of overwinter soil cover would impact soil conditions in the spring, and of course, crop yield in the following year. I'm a graduate student with the Sustainable Agricultural Landscapes Lab at the University of British Columbia. Along with fellow researchers and the vegetable and flower farmers who participated in this study, I will describe the process of this research and what we found after two years of field trials across the province of BC. As with much of the work in our lab, the impetus for this project was climate change.
0: The Climate and Agriculture Initiative of British Columbia predicts that in many areas of the province, average spring and fall precipitation is expected to increase along with the rise in the frequency and intensity of extreme rainfall events. Wetter conditions could increase the chance of saturated soils.
1: All this rain in the fall, winter, and early spring is expected to continue in the years to come. For farmers, this can mean challenges establishing cover crops. Cover cropping is a staple practice of organic agriculture, and for many farmers, a preferred management strategy for the winter months.
2: Cover crops are crops that are planted during the off season of farming activities, when soils would otherwise be bare. And so they're used to help hold the soil together during times when there might be erosion or runoff and also to help to add carbon to the system.
1: With all of the benefits that cover crops can provide for soil and crops, it's no wonder that many producers choose to plant them. However, wetter soils and the realities of managing diverse annual cropping systems can be challenging.
3: If I think about where we're constrained here, like South Coast BC, it is those shoulder seasons and what do we do through our long, wet winters? And then what are the implications for getting things going in the spring? I think and get so excited about cover cropping and yet I continue to plant cover crops too late and speculate whether there's any benefit <laughs> whatsoever.
0: It's the same problem we have with cover crops in the Kootenays is you have such a slim window to put the cover crop in. You have to take out production time in August to put that cover crop in it.
3: Yeah, so for us, we don't have a tractor. So that's the main thing is just being able to
2: turn in the cover crop that we do. You know, there, are, there are limits to what we can get established with respect to the cover crop.
1: So this is the central problem. It is often impossible for growers to get all of their fields into cover crop every year. However, we know that soil can be especially vulnerable in the winter months, especially with the increases in precipitation that we are seeing. In response, growers have begun to experiment with plastic tarps as a form of soil cover. These tarps are non-permeable UV-treated polyethylene, originally manufactured for silage producers.
2: Um, We've had them for probably five, maybe six years now.
0: Yeah, I think we're on year
2: four with some of them.
3: It's helped in terms of being able to produce later into the fall and still having some sort of soil protection over
2: the winter. Just having the tarp over there, it's not having bare ground with soil erosion. And the perceived advantage for our soils, it's about getting onto a particular piece of land earlier in the spring. It is nice in the spring too when you pull that tarp back. It's clean. You can pretty much see right into it. It's nice to not have to wait for cover crop to break down.
1: As with all innovations, their potential benefits are accompanied by challenges.
0: Challenges have
3: been wind. Every windstorm you're kind of worrying about them.
2: The wind can get underneath it and just causes it to levitate. Hey, those windstorms, they something. Dealing with wind. So
3: we don't love having... The reliance on the plastic.
2: Or just the weariness of more plastic. We use so much plastic (laughs) and we always feel bad.
0: They create very suitable habitat for mice and voles.
2: We do notice rodents. Mice. Vole explosion.
0: They were just so cumbersome to pull around. The
2: amount of effort required to drag the tarps around. They get water, they're hard to move. It's not really a one-person job. Covered in water, it's just hard to move them.
1: So these tarps are potentially an important overwinter option in areas where cover crop can't be established. But these tarps are a fairly new tool, so there's a lot that we don't know. From the perspective of the soil, there are questions about the impact of these tarps on soil moisture, nutrient retention, and crop yield, among other things. With the objective of comparing the impact of cover cropping and tarping on soil properties, We got to work in the field. We used two different study designs to set up this experiment. We call them the experimental study and the regional study. Each of these study designs has complementary strengths. The data collected from one study works to strengthen and fill in gaps in the other. In the experimental study, we worked with two farms to compare overwinter tarps with cover crops in a controlled and replicated manner. Both farms hosted a randomly assigned patchwork of 16 tarp and 16 cover crop plots. These farms are interesting comparisons because they are geographically separate, one near Vancouver and the other one in the Cowichan Valley on Vancouver Island, and they both have very different soil textures, one a coarse loamy sand and one a fine silt loam. This study gives us a detailed and precise look at overwinter soil cover for a few reasons.
2: We have very accurate soil baseline data. We can control for levels of carbon in the soil, uh, phosphorus, nitrogen, and because we have replication, we can do more robust statistical analyses.
1: However, the experimental approach limits what the data can tell us. It constrains our findings to only the conditions of these two particular farms. This is where the regional study comes in.
0: Being able to see how our outcomes vary under different management, different soils, different climatic conditions, you know, that's something that's really important because if we're limiting our research to only controlled settings on one or two experimental farms, we really don't know how these results are going to work out in the real world.
1: We identified three key agricultural regions in B.C. to conduct this study. The Lower Fraser Valley, Vancouver Island, and the Kootenay Mountains. Twelve farms agreed to participate. These growers primarily produce vegetables and cut flowers. Each of the regional farms hosted one tarp plot and one no tarp plot, so no on-farm replication here. Unlike the experimental farms, many of the regional farms could not establish a cover crop, so we considered this comparison tarp versus no tarp. And with that, we were off. In the fall of 2019, we set up the trials on the experimental and regional farms, planting cover crop, dragging out the tarps, and securing them with more sandbags than one would think necessary. And then we waited. It rained, the wind howled, and in some places it snowed. Then finally, the spring of 2020 arrived. We were ready to collect our samples.
0: And then COVID happened.
1: With travel restrictions in place and access to the farms extremely limited, it seemed like our work may have been for naught. But the farmers rallied, our support systems in each region galvanized, and everyone agreed to keep the project going. To keep everyone safe, farmers got involved with the data collection on their own farms, and we put in place protocols to keep everyone working at a distance. Soil samples were collected at the time of tarp removal. This timing was a little different on each farm, depending on the weather and their crop choice for the growing season. In general, tarps were removed in the first two weeks of April. The tarp plots and the no tarp or cover crop plots were sampled at the same time. This meant that any plot that successfully had a stand of cover crop was sampled while the cover crop was still growing. Keep in mind that this was a two year trial. So when the fall of 2020 rolled around, we did it all again. On the same research plots on each farm, we pulled the tarps over the soil and attempted to seed cover crops in the adjacent comparison plots. For those out there listening, wondering how exactly we sample this soil for our analyses, here is the nutshell version. Note that all sampling for this study occurred at a depth of zero to 15 centimeters.
2: When we're taking samples, we would take maybe five samples per plot and mix them all together and then take a subsample of that to actually do the analysis on. And that way, We're hoping to kind of even out the highs and lows and get a representative sample.
1: So now that we've collected all of our soil samples, what did we find? That is the big question. Let's start with soil moisture. We measured soil moisture in the field using a probe that sticks right into the ground to a depth of about eight centimeters. There are several ways to quantify soil moisture. We used volumetric water content, which is simply the percentage of the volume of soil water to the volume of soil.
0: So, by fully submerging the probes into soil, those two probes will send electromagnetic waves
2: into the soil. And the time it takes for those waves to return back to the probe is positively correlated to the volumetric moisture content in the soil.
1: In both the regional and experimental studies, we measured soil moisture content when we pulled off the tarps, and at first, we didn't see a clear picture. On some farms, the tarps appeared to keep the ground drier, and in other cases, the soil was much wetter. Luckily, we were able to look a bit closer on one farm, and that gave us some insight into what might be happening. At one experimental farm site, we were able to take soil moisture measurements over the winter. Every two weeks, we stuck that probe into the ground on every plot. From this data, we saw something interesting. All winter, from the time of tarp installation in the fall until early March, the soil under the tarps stayed drier. Then BAM! Spring hit, and the soil under the cover crops was drier. It stayed like this with wetter conditions under the tarps until we pulled them off in late April. It's likely that as the air and soil warmed in the early spring, water was able to evaporate in cover cropped areas, whereas the impermeable tarps held the water in. As the cover crops started to put on new growth, their roots would be pulling up water from the soil as well, further drying out the ground. This could explain all the variation we saw on the regional farms. Soil moisture is very dependent on the timing of tarp removal. There is likely a window of time in the early spring, depending on soil texture and climate, where the choice to remove or keep in place a tarp will be important. This is a consideration for growers who plan to till after tarp removal who may want soil moisture to be kept low. On the other hand, if you are a grower on coarse textured soil, wanting to keep that water from evaporating, you may want to keep the tarp in place as long as possible. An interesting finding for sure. The next thing we looked at was plant available nitrogen, sometimes referred to as pan. Nitrogen comes in many forms in the soil, but here we are talking specifically about nitrate and ammonium.
2: There are simple molecules that contain nitrogen, they don't have any carbon in them. We know that carbon-based molecules, that means that they're organic. They're coming from living organisms. Nitrate and ammonium without that carbon are inorganic forms of nitrogen. And these forms are really important from an agronomic standpoint because plant roots typically take up inorganic nitrogen, such as nitrate and ammonium, a lot more than carbon-based molecules.
1: Beyond the agronomic importance of plant-available nitrogen, we need to consider how these inorganic forms of nitrogen move in the soil and what that means for their susceptibility to leaching in the rainy winter months.
2: Nitrate and ammonium, they have these charges that are associated with them. So we call them ions. Nitrate is a, a negatively charged ion, and ammonium is a positively charged ion. And this is really important to understand how they interact with soil. So a positively charged ion, which is ammonium, is going to be attracted to negative charges. And in soil, there's a lot of surfaces in soil that have that negative charge. Clay, for example, it has a lot of negative charged surface area, as well as organic material that's in the soil. So ammonium gets attracted to the surfaces of soil particles, so it's not going to move a lot in soil, whereas nitrate has that negative charge. So it's just going to flip right by those negative charge surfaces and it moves really well in water. So it's going to move in, in water not get attracted to soil as much. And that's why it's more susceptible to leaching.
1: Based on the differences in charges between nitrate and ammonium, It is unsurprising that we didn't see any statistical differences in ammonium depending on overwinter cover type. However, we did see a consistent trend when we measured nitrate. Across the board, in both springs, 2020 and 2021, in every region and on each experimental farm, concentrations of nitrate were higher in the tarped plots. We think that because the tarps kept most of the rainwater off the soil, less water is moving down through the soil profile and more of the mobile and soluble nutrients are protected from leaching such as nitrate. This has implications for growers interested in using this residual nitrogen in the following growing season. These results suggest that producers may want to think about reducing the time between tarp removal and planting when trying to optimize the use of residual nitrogen in the soil. Transplants may be especially well suited to this task as they have already developed root systems just waiting to take up nutrients from the soil. It should certainly be stated here that in the plots that successfully grew a cover crop, there is nitrogen tied up in that plant biomass, and it's not being measured here. This nitrogen will become available once the cover crop is tilled in and has decomposed. However, Because many of the regional farms did not have cover crops and we still saw elevated nitrate concentrations under the tarps, we think there is some protective action by these tarps for soil ions. Now we are almost through this results section and I think we should pause for just a moment to think a bit deeper about how it is that we measure plant available nitrogen. In part because I'm having such a good time and I don't want this to end. And in part because it's neat.
2: There's a few different ways you can measure nitrate and ammonium in soil. But one of the most common, commonly done ways that we do it in the lab is removing those ions from the soil and then you, you mix it with a salty solution. And that salt knocks those ions off, moves them into solution. And then we mix up that solution with other chemicals that react together and change the color of it and then running it through a machine that can measure how much light gets absorbed by that solution. And the more light that gets absorbed by that solution means there's more nitrate or ammonium in that soil. We call that spectrophotometry.
1: Measuring plant available nitrogen is one of the more beautiful lab activities that we do. Once the chemical reactions have taken hold of the sample solutions, the color changes can be pretty spectacular. Ammonium turning a calm blue, and nitrate a bright pink. Back to the results. At the same time that we measured plant-available nitrogen, we also measured electrical conductivity. Electrical conductivity, or you may hear it called EC for short, is a measure of soil salinity. When we talk about salinity, or soil salts, we don't mean table salt. Salts are any charged ion floating around in the soil, or loosely attracted to one of those charged surfaces of soil particles. Often these salts or ions are important plant nutrients, nitrate and ammonium being examples that we are now familiar with. By the same mechanism that the tarps appear to be protecting nitrate from leaching by preventing the infiltration and percolation of water through the soil profile over the winter, we expected that other types of nutrients would be held in the soil as well. And that is what we saw. The tarped plots compared with the no tarp or cover crop plots had greater measures of electrical conductivity. This doesn't tell us which types of ions are being held in the soil under the tarps, but it does tell us that they are there. Now, while on one hand this means that there are likely nutrients ready for plant uptake underneath these tarps in the spring, we were interested to see if soil salinity would build over time from the first year of the study to the second. We can see this happen with the use of different types of plastic culture that exclude rainfall, like greenhouses and high tunnels. However, in the study, we didn't observe any increase in soil salinity from the first to second year, and all of the measures of electrical conductivity were well below what would be considered detrimental to crop growth. Last but not least, we measured crop yield. We were only able to do this on the two experimental farms because of the limitations of the pandemic. And on these farms, we did not observe differences in yield based on overwinter soil cover type. However, based on conversations with growers, we do know that the picture is not quite so simple. Many producers use these tarps in a variety of different ways. They can be used to clear new ground, for weed control, or to move between successions during the growing season. Depending on how these tarps are integrated into the farm system, they will certainly have implications for labor compared to other soil cover strategies. While we didn't measure it here, it would be interesting to look at how cover cropping and tarps impact yield per unit of labor. Something for future research. And that was a lot of information. I hope you are still with me. There is a written report that accompanies this recording. There you can check out the graphs and figures, really visualize the data, and dig into the numbers. Pun intended. This report can be accessed on the Sustainable Agricultural Landscapes Lab's website. Link in the show notes. Feel free to reach out to me directly. I'm always happy to answer questions. Or...
2: Yeah, let's have a beer before all hell breaks loose and... (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> thanks for listening and a big thank you to the farmers and research team members who sat for virtual interviews enduring technological complications and unstable connections that often sounded something like it's recording now can, can you, you hear me can you hear me now yeah. yeah sorry you froze and it was in the middle of such a good sentence are you back i think you're muted are you still there i oh, know and you froze again
2: <laughs> oh, no." <laughs> that's how that goes it is really
1: thank you to all of the regional farmers who participated in this research you were so generous with your time space and energy the voices of farmer participants heard on this recording are angela weir crooked horn farm
2: so my name's Callie. Brendan and I run Salix and Sedge Farm in Salmo. I'm Delisa Lewis and I operate Green Fire Farm in the Cowichan Valley. Aaron Bett, Fierce Love Farm.
1: Foster Richardson, Hilldown
0: Farm in Cobble Hill.
2: I'm Kylie Piggott and I own Dancing Danny Lamb Farms. Laya Sandler, I work for the Swassen First Nation Farm School. I'm Lydia Ryle of Cropthorn Farm.
0: My name's Matt. I operate Linen Lane Farms. Uh, I'm Nikki. I'm Nick.
2: Tatler Road Farm.
0: My name is Scott Humphreys. I operate Bent Plow with my partner, Emma Soyak.
1: The contributing voices of the Sustainable Agricultural Landscapes Lab are
2: I'm Sean Smuckler, Pierre Borden, Carson Lee,
1: Jordy Crazy. The narrative work in this podcast was written, edited, and mixed by me. Raylani Kessler Music by Victory Shoes, Robert John, Lobo Loco, and Ketsa. Production assistance from Duncan McHugh. This research was conducted on the traditional and unceded territories of the following indigenous peoples who have lived on and cared for this land since time immemorial. The Hunkkameenam-speaking Musqueam, Tswassen, Kwantlen, and Katsi peoples the Halkkamelem speaking Stolo peoples, the Halkkameenem speaking Cowichan tribes, Tsubaset, and Staminas peoples, the Lekwungen speaking Semiamu and Songhees peoples, the Nisulchin speaking Seal, and Snakes peoples, the Sowepamtson speaking Sowepmuh people, and the Kutane speaking Katunaa people. Funding for this project has been provided in part by the governments of Canada and British Columbia under the Canadian Agricultural Partnership, a federal-provincial-territorial initiative. Funding is administered by the Investment Agriculture Foundation of BC. This project is part of the Farm Adaptation Innovator Program delivered by the Climate and Agriculture Initiative, BC.
0: Raylani Kessler, it's uh, it's a real pleasure to sit down and talk to you about your research.
3: Hi, Jordan Marr. It is a real pleasure to be here. Thank you,
0: Raylani, I think I want to start just by talking about the piece we just heard because this is um like, I don't know, a little bit unpredictable or unusual to kind of get to hear about someone's research in a narrative piece like we just heard. It's it's really cool. I really enjoyed listening to it myself when I first got to hear it. And I'm just wondering how that came about.
3: Yeah, thank you. Um, it came about because personally, I really like radio. And I was trying to think of something Kind of creative that would be a little bit more accessible than some of the written reports that we provide to folks and especially to the participants of these trials that would be able to communicate the research pro- process and kind of what we found in the end
0: i think it was really yeah. i think it was really effective Raylani, and uh again just so interesting to listen to and really thorough We, you and I knew we were going to record a conversation about your research, but we can kind of take it in a different direction because, um, your piece just covered so much of the actual research you did. I think, uh, because of that, I want to start with like a general interest question. Um, you, you kind of introduced at the very start with that recording of, of someone, probably you walking through really wet soil on a farm, but what got you interested, I guess, in like personally in, uh, focusing on this topic in your research?
3: I think that this research is really timely. Even in the years that we had this trial running, kind of 2019 through 2021, we saw um, pretty dramatic rainfall in the in the winter months. And so this is something that is topical for farmers or the people who are out there managing soil have a lot to deal with and Um, our job as researchers is to help provide kind of information so that folks can make the best decision they can with the tools that they have and understand some of the the factors behind it all. And certainly these um, tarps are becoming more and more popular, especially at a smaller scale. And because they're relatively new, there's... um, we're lacking in some of the general information about their impacts. So this project ultimately aims to um serve growers and having a bit more information when they go to make their overwinter plans.
0: I've got to say Raylani, that's like one thing that I find so cool about about your work um and and also your colleague Amy who will um I'll also be interviewing in this in this podcast series. Um just that like you're two researchers from like kind of my region, like of British Columbia. And I know or I have a sense because I've attended conferences with you before going back a few years and with your other colleagues that um, this work has kind of sprung out of, of researchers like you and, and your colleagues and your advisors and stuff like interacting with the farming community and asking what they want to learn about or what, where the research needs are. And I know that, I know starting a few years ago, I was asking for research on tarps and I know others were too. So it's kind of cool to see that process actually bear fruit, you know? Um, I learned, I learned, I learned, like I learned quite a bit from from your research or and, and some of that was just like stuff that was new to me. Um, and also just a part of your conclusions were just confirming what I think, probably many of us assumed but there's a difference between assuming and kind of starting to get data that can you know provides confirmation you know so reilani i'd like to ask a follow-up question um about the part of your research that focused on what was happening in the spring when you were comparing the tarped plots versus untarped plots and how at some point whereas the tarp plots had had been measuring comparatively less moisture over the winter at some point um, in the spring you started to see a flip and the untarp plots were were drier so i guess my question is as i try and wrap my head around what's happening under the tarps you you were talking about comparing moisture did did moisture if we think about just the moisture readings or measurements under the tarps As you proceeded into the spring, did actual moisture levels ever rise or was it more, is it more correct to say that no, the moisture never got higher under the tarps in the spring, but rather the uncovered areas were just drying out faster for the reasons you covered in your piece?
3: Right. So it's like more, is it actually holding in water or is it just evaporating slower? yeah is that
0: what you're saying yeah so like because essentially i was just wondering if there's water arriving into the soil under the Mm -hmm. under the tarps and actually bringing soil moisture up rather than simply um soil moisture perhaps is staying the same or slowly going down but but at some point in the spring the rate of evaporation in the uncovered plots just increased and therefore comparatively were drier
3: Right. So what we see is that the soil moisture under the tarps holds steady and then the soil moisture in those cover cropped areas decreases. So it's not that there is more water being added to these tarp areas. They're just not drying out at the same rate. And then when we pull off the tarps fairly quickly, the soil moisture levels converge between the tarped and the cover cropped areas.
0: Right, well, at, at any rate, it was just, um, that was kind of, that was a small revelation for me in listening to your piece, was just that as we as we think about these rates of change when comparing the two kind of approaches, um, if you are using tarps, it, 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 it tends to speak to like different strategies you can take depending on what outcome you want. Um, whether, you're, whether you're trying to, whether you, you have a motivation to keep moisture levels high or whether you're in a hurry to dry things out.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And that's going to depend on so many other things, like what what systems are in place, are people needing to till, are people direct seeding or transplanting, are they on a coarse textured soil or they have a really um, finer uh, if they have a finer textured soil that's going to hold in that water. Yeah, it just really depends on what you're working with and what your goals are.
0: So another another question I I want to ask you about um comparative moisture in these kind of two approaches or systems is I know that some of your uh, research was done on farms in the interior the southern interior of BC in the Kootenays I believe um mm-hmm. and so I'm assuming that for a good portion of the winter um on those plots the the ground was probably frozen and 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 or covered in snow and in general, you made a statement or two about how like you saw a lot of uniformity of your conclusions, like across all the different um, farm ecosystems you were researching in. But is there anything different or noteworthy you observed about anywhere where the ground was freezing? I'm thinking about both the um, comparative soil moisture levels, but also, you know, you were, you were looking at basically whether nitrates were, were staying put or not. And I'm wondering how it was different in, the, in, in anywhere where you'd have frozen soil.
3: Yeah. So, uh, to speak to the soil moisture part of that question, we actually weren't able to collect soil moisture data in the spring in the Kootenai Mountain region in 2020 because of COVID. And then when I say that uh, we saw kind of the same trend across all of the regions, that just means that we generally saw that there was... Higher levels of soil moisture in these tarped areas than in untarped areas on the regional farms. However, the total value or the total amount of water that was actually in the soil did vary by region. So it certainly was the case that, um, you know, Vancouver Island and the lower mainland had wetter soils than the Kootenai Mountains in the spring, but it was. You know in every region still the case that those tarped plots had were were wetter um and yeah because on the regional farms we only measured soil moisture at that one point in the spring it's really hard to say what was happening in the frozen soils over the winter by the time that that we were there uh taking these measurements or the farmers were taking these measurements the ground was not frozen
0: Right, and then was what about on the kind of what about in terms of the focus on um, the movement of of ions? I guess like uh, we, the main focus in your piece was nitrates, but um, was there any noteworthy difference did, that you found, like in, in, in the Kootenays, where, where the the soil would be frozen for more of the season?
3: We didn't observe a major difference by region with nitrate. In 2020, all of the regions looked pretty similar in their absolute levels of nitrate um, or the concentration of nitrate that we measured in the soil. In 2021, the Kootenai Mountains had a lower measure of nitrate, but it's also important to keep in mind, it's a small sample size. There were four farms in the Kootenai Mountains. And on these farms, there's pretty um, variable fertility strategies. So the amount of nitrate that we're measuring in the spring is likely related to how much was left over in the fall. Mm-hmm. So if people just generally applied less fertilizer or there was just less uh, left over after the crops were harvested, then we would see that in um, in the spring that overall there would be there would just be less in the soil. Mm-hmm. So this experiment was really set up to kind of compare these overwinter treatments themselves and then look at trends across uh, regions.
0: So the other uh, kind of the other topic I wanted to follow up on after listening to your piece was on um, essentially your your crop yield testing. So you, you waited until the fall following your first round of comparisons in the spring. Um, because you wanted to be able to try and see if there were differences in crop performance in, in between the two systems. What I was thinking about as I listened to your piece is, um, is it is it, was there any risk? Did you have complete control over the plots? I mean, did did each set of plots receive the exact same amendments? And, and was like, did you take the exact same approach to growing crops in your, when you're comparing the two systems? Yeah,
3: this is a great qu- clarifying question. So we measured yields only on the experimental farms, so UBC Farm in the Lower Mainland and um, Green Fire Farm on Vancouver Island. And both of these farms, we were controlling the fertility amendments. This is part of how this project relates to the nutrient management project of the previous podcast. So we're still trialing those treatments where we have different um, levels of compost and fertilizer that are applied to different plots in the field. And we're able to, when we look at that data, account for differences statistically using mathematical models, which allows us to kind of isolate the influences of the treatments we're looking at and then pull out the variation that might be um, being caused by something like a difference in fertility treatment or topography or shading. So we are controlling for that mathematically, and then we're also controlling that for that in the field by applying um, uniform levels of fertility.
0: So I guess based
3: on plant requirement.
0: Right. Yeah. So I, I guess where. I guess where my question came from was, I was imagining a scenario where what if you added, so so let's say you took the same approach for a given covered plot and an uncovered plot through the winter, then the spring comes. Mm-hmm. So let's say you control and take the same approach and it's the same application of amendments and same set of crops grown. What about a scenario where in both cases, you've added more nutrient than the crop needs anyway and that because it's funny you mentioned your colleague amy's project on nutrient management because that's what i was kind of thinking about was well wait a second if if you're looking at a measure of crop yields at the end of the season is is there a risk that you've added more nutrition than the crop needs anyway and so therefore measuring yields and other crop performance may not be an indicator of what was happening comparatively between the uncovered plots and the covered plots. Am I making sense?
3: Yeah. Um, it does make sense. Okay. So in some of the plots we're actually applying no fertility. So the control treatment gets no compost or no fertilizer. So we do have an idea of the differences in yield, um, as they relate to just these overwinter treatments with no like compost or fertilizer interfering potentially. And then all of the other nutrient amendments um, that we apply are to the same level, just using a variety of sources. So they're all getting the same amount of nitrogen. And then we are calculating the amount of fertility to add based on what we think the crop will remove. I do think so, like two, so we grew kind of, um, we grew fairly long season crops. So in the first year they were beets and fennel and then shelling beans in the second year. And it is definitely possible that there would be a more clear impact on yields by these overwinter covers if the crops were shorter season or something like a radish or lettuce that might turn around in just a month or two as opposed to going back to harvest in um, August or September you know months after we have pulled off the tarps or tilled in the cover crops so I think there could certainly be a difference depending on crop
0: selection also sure but I also think I understand a bit better and this is where you know not being a researcher I didn't Directly go to this, but just that because you have different, you have the control, in, including, I guess, the plots with no amendments added. It's in the comparison of the different applications of amendments where, I guess, your models and your different ways of comparison start to give you a picture of what's of the relationship between the overwintering stage and the final crop.
3: Yeah. And this is also kind of where the power of the experimental design comes in, also. So we have these two farms that are in two different climates. And if we see the same trend on both farms, that also gives us an indication of the robustness of the difference that comes from these treatments that we're trying to measure. So when we you know don't see a difference in yield in both of these circumstances, that also is a, a clue or an indication that in just in the way that we have set this up to measure yield as just a product of carp or cover crop we're not seeing that that's a hugely important factor there's a lot of other things that go into um, crop yield like you're saying
0: right okay well thank you those that those were my follow-up questions after hearing your piece and now i kind of was hoping we could just spend a few minutes kind of broadening out and talking more generally about the use of tarps on farms, you know, because I think
3: yeah, I th- talking tarps. I,
0: well, yeah, I mean, I assume you've been you've been kind of uh, obsessed with them for the last two or three years, and <laughs> as I haven't mentioned it yet um, specifically, but like I've been using I've been using tarps in my market garden for years now, um, sometimes for breaking down crops and sometimes to um, to reduce the amount of moisture moving through my soil over the winter. So. Um, yeah, this was, Mm -hmm. this was really relevant to me, but I guess, I guess, I guess my first question, just for people, especially I'm thinking about the people who maybe aren't using tarps yet. So you mentioned in your piece, like typically farmers are sourcing, um, a type of plastic normally produced or originally intended to be used as like a silage tarp, which is a method for fermenting various food materials for, um, for livestock, but it's a very suitable, um, UV resistant plastic to use in this application um Mm -hmm. but i'm wondering if you could give us some details on because you've seen a lot of farms that are have used them um what what is the give us an idea of like the typical scale of the farm that's doing it and give me give me if you see a farm making regular use of tarps like what's a small size tarp being that you see being used and what's what's the biggest size tarp you being see being used
3: speaking from my own Um, experience working on farms that use tarps and then also learning a lot from the growers who participated in this project. People are using these tarps for a really wide variety of purposes and the, the size of them is really dependent on the size of the farm and then the purpose themselves. So the farms that participated in this study were anywhere from maybe a little less than an acre all the way to 10 acres. But the people who were using or are already using tarps are kind of in that less than five acre under cultivation zone.
0: Well, for, for what it's worth, Uh, for what it's worth, it's what I see anecdotally too. I would, I would probably pin it at like typically the one to five acre size farm is what you where you typically yeah. see and 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 you know usually we're talking about vegetable production is where we're mm-hmm. we're seeing it yes. fair enough yeah um,
3: yes definitely annual production so there's some folks are using them in cut flowers but um and cut flowers that have a, a similar successional kind of strategy to what we see in small scale vegetable farms and, and, but the size of the tarps themselves are anywhere from one bed so there are people who are managing these tarps on a bed by bed basis so it would be you know just three feet wide by maybe 50 or 100 feet long to people covering kind of an entire block so that tarp might be 25 feet wide by 100 feet long
0: okay alright so it's just I mean I was asking it in my own interest partly because like for, for, for the record on my farm all of my tarps are standardized to the size of my planting blocks which is about 42 feet by 50 feet that's so those are those are what all my tarps are mm-hmm. and um it, can you
3: move that by yourself I is can, that a one person move it it, de-
0: it depends more? as you probably know um
3: <laughs> yeah you know, when
0: they're covered with water that's that's a that's a different ball game but like generally speaking if i have to i can move a tarp even with water on it by myself Um, I I usually prefer to have a helper, but, but like, yes, I move them all the time by myself. So my 42 by 50 is not that much different in area than the 25 by 100, you know, that you, Mm -hmm. you just mentioned. So uh, if if you're using human power, that seems to be getting towards an upper limit before it gets, you know, pretty, pretty difficult um, to be moving them. Yeah. So that's definitely, and that is
3: something that people talk about a lot in the scaling of their tarps is they're thinking about the labor that they have available and if it is important to them that they can move that tarp on their own or if they pretty reliably have someone else and
0: can get two people moving these tarps. Totally. And then just like regardless of overall effort required, I I, I have to say I'm really glad I don't have 100 foot long tarps, which I know some of my colleagues do because <laughs> they're just, aside from how much they weigh, they're just so unwieldy. like in general at, yeah. at that length. So, um, they can, they can get tricky. Um, I wanted I wanted to ask you your thoughts about, um, I mean, I, I think tarps have been awesome. Like, and it's, that's why I've been using them at the same time. I have to imagine you encountered ambivalence from some of your research subjects about some of the trade-offs of you visiting tarps, like the environmental cost being probably the, yeah. the one that springs to mind I also want to stress Absolutely. on your on your behalf that in this part of our conversation about your research we are not talking about your research we are talking about, I am just talking from a farmer to a researcher both of whom have spent a lot of time <laughs> thinking about this stuff but um we're right. just we're just we're just kind of we're sharing our tarp love right now and we're not holding you to account for your for what are essentially just <laughs> observations that I'm asking you to make
3: yeah <clears throat> I'm not hired by the tarping industry
0: <laughs> <laughs> nor nor has this next section of our conversation been peer reviewed. I guess that was the part I was uh one yeah to yeah <laughs> um, okay but what 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 is your what is your take on on that environmental trade off
3: yeah, I think as you stated, it's all of these practices are choosing one is assessing the good and the bad and trying to figure out what comes out in the wash or in the balance, and so When we are looking at situations where the option is bare ground or tarped ground, we're trying to kind of see what tools would, if tarping is a good tool, that would be better than a bad situation, if that makes sense. Or acknowledging kind of these other factors that might prohibit growers from establishing some of these best management practices like cover crops. Like growers need early ground. With all of this increase in precipitation, the soil is wetter for some folks in a way that they might have, there might be economic consequences for them not being able to get into the ground early or be able to continue production into the fall. And so giving people information about the options that they have while still acknowledging that this is absolutely a petroleum product. Mm -hmm. It would be great to see, um, in general, options for recycling these tarps or just agricultural plastics in general and some good ways to repair them. Uh, I think people would be interested in both of those those things but the other thing I do think about is like there is information about the micro plastic part of it or any sort of like leaching from tarping or plastic tarps is like becoming more available but that is also something that comes up for people when they think about the reasons why they wouldn't want to use
0: them it's I've thought, and thought about it, it really I've, <laughs> I've thought about it for as long as I've been using tarps I go back to your piece though and I you had one or two farmers quoted talking about the real challenge of getting those cover crops down at the end of the season in the sense that you if you're trying to get a full cover there's there really in this part of the world there isn't in many cases there's not enough time to get i mean yeah a, a general rule of thumb for an ideal cover crop headed into the winter is 60 days before last frost you're seeding your cover crop and not just like it really right. i can i can validate those farmers statements it really isn't very realistic Um, Mm -hmm. unless you're cutting your season really, really short. In fact, like I can, I'm more, I I find it, you know, when you talk about in the spring and needing to get a head start, I think that's actually the easier part. I I can wrap my head as a farmer around delaying my crops by the three weeks that I would need to say, turn under my cover crop. That, that I'd be more willing to accept as a, as like just a reality of cover cropping. It's, it's just getting the cover crop down in, in the fall. And then when you, when you think about this point you're making and it's, it was really hammered home by, by the terrible, terrible atmospheric river based storm of, of November 2021. Yeah. Um, They really become like, especially down, I would argue, um, down in the wetter, like regions where the soil is less prone to get be covered in snow and ice it's a pretty important factor so um i do think like every decision in farming is a series of trade-offs and there are the trade-offs you and i just kind of highlighted with with the tarps and we haven't talked just about their expense you're introducing a new expense into your system but um i don't know they do as you as your research has demonstrated they confer some some serious like some benefits really worth considering
3: yeah, and I, I think one of the other um, benefits, maybe worth stating, or another thing we haven't talked about, is there are people <clears throat> tarps are, have a much lower barrier to entry than a tractor or some sort of mechanical um, way of clearing the ground. So for new growers who are not growing on a huge amount of space and don't have a lot of equipment, I think that these tools like tarps make it more possible for them to do things like clear more ground, move between successions in a way that would otherwise cost them a lot more money. Um, And then also, you know, you have to be able to know how to maintain and use uh, equipment, whereas tarps are pretty user-friendly once you figure out (laughs) how to fold them and how to make them stay down in the wind.
0: (laughs) Yeah, totally. Um, And then just as you were making that summary, I I realized I almost forgot to highlight, even though you talked about it in your piece and so did your, your guests in your piece, the rodent issue is not to be taken lightly with these things. Um,
3: Absolutely.
0: (laughs) You use, you use tarps for a few years and you're inviting a buildup of a serious rodent problem because it's just this perfect habitat Uh, as far as providing both habitat and also protecting these um, rodents from the predators that would normally be keeping them in check.
3: Yeah, it's very true. (laughs) They do love it under there. And there was someone who said that, you know, apart from the holes that rodents will chew in these tarps, they said the holes that their dog then contributes to the tarps trying to get at the rodents underneath them is kind of like a double whammy.
0: So, Relani, um, you know, as we've just kind of covered, it's I, I don't think I, I, I think I can speak for both of us. You can correct me if I'm wrong that it's it's certainly not correct to say that using tarps in your system is an absolute no brainer. You have to you have to give it some thought. You have to weigh those those pros and cons. As a farmer, I've weighed the pros and cons and I continue to use the tarps. But what I will say is like it's a lot easier to make decisions when we when we actually start to have like data on on their use yeah. and we have actual knowledge from from researchers like you. And so I just want to finish by thanking you. It was just so cool as I said at the start of our conversation. Um, to just, just like get to learn about the results, um, conducted by research that was created at least partially because of requests of the farmers who wanted to know more about the practices they were engaging in. That's super cool. Um, and I just want to say, thank you. Thank you for all the effort you put into, um, learning and, and sharing what you have.
3: Yeah. Well, thank you for all your thoughtful questions. I, Yeah, this is the good part of this research is getting to talk with people who use these techniques and hearing their experiences and how this has has been helpful for them. So thank you.
0: All right, that concludes our two-part series about some recent research of the UBC Sustainable Agricultural Landscapes Lab. A reminder to check the show notes for each episode if you want to learn more on these topics. These two episodes were funded by the BC Ministry of Agriculture, Food and Fisheries Knowledge and Technology Transfer Program. Amy and Raylani, it was a pleasure to work with you. I learned a bunch. Talk to you soon, everyone.